Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What can we do to fight back against big pharma and the compromised medical industry? We can become healthy and break free from the perpetual cycle of being poisoned by criminal organizations like most pharmaceutical companies. Come check out what may be the most powerful antioxidant known to man, C60 Purple Power. The benefits of C60 have been personally outstanding. I use it every day and I feel incredible. I have tons of energy, I sleep great, and I haven't even come down with a cold since I started using C60 over two years ago. You can even get C60 for your pets. Do your own research, click the link in the description, and check out their website. If you order from that link or use coupon code KNOWLEDGE10, you get 10% off your order plus free shipping. What is your health worth to you? Back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is Oak Mountain. First, a couple of announcements. Our website is forbiddenknowledge.news. This is also the Forbidden Knowledge Network, where you find some of your favorite podcasts featured. Forbidden Knowledge News is always on Rockfin, Odyssey, and all podcast platforms. Our social media is Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All those links are right in the description. And be sure to check us out on Rockfin. This is where you get our premium content. You also get all the premium content from every creator on Rockfin. Just go to rockfin.com slash FKN plus to sign up. That's R-O-K-F-I-N dot com slash FKN plus. Today I want to welcome Oak Mountain. He is an author and philosopher with a background in world religions. 
He was raised in Canada, and his unique and hybrid approach to language blends the wisdoms of the East and West with the natural wisdom of the living world. The aim of his work is to support the emergence of truth and harmony from within the pervasive communication confusion of the modern age. He also works with groups and individuals to activate the power of their speech to generate connective communication within their relationships. Oak, welcome. How you doing? Doing great, Chris. Feeling great today. Happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you here. This is going to be great. Looking forward to this ever since you uh, reached out. Today we're going to talk about your insights into the powers of language, both positive and negative, from religious language to somatics and mass manipulation, and the role language really plays throughout our reality. Before we get to any of that, this is your first time on. I'd love to hear more about yourself, your background, your journey, and what led you down the path you're on. Certainly. Well, that's a great one. The things that might be most relevant in terms of the topics today, in terms of my background, I have combined degrees in the study of religion and philosophy, focusing specifically on the mysticism of language. Uh, language has always been sort of a, a proclivity of mine, something I've been interested in, and I really got to dive in through university. I've always had an ear for music and an ear for language. I speak three languages at the moment, English, French, and Spanish. So the nature of language, how it shapes my understanding, how it shaped my relationships has always been a part of my curiosities. And, you know, thinking back to childhood, my, my parents would call me a parrot because particularly some of my favorite movies back in the day, I was able to recite word for word, like tone for tone. And so I've always had this magnetism towards language in that way. And, and yeah, a little bit about me personally, born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, most recently living on Vancouver Island in Canada, currently in Mexico. Um, I've traveled all around the world to different sacred sites, to different countries to learn more about philosophy, religion, what makes people tick and what the real lowdown is on this human experience. So. Right on, man. Awesome. Well, maybe we could start out with you giving the audience a synopsis of the few of the main things that we'll be discussing today in regards to language. Sure. I'd love to be able to talk about where the source of language actually is. So where does meaning come from? Why is it that language is so potent? And how do we, in discovering where that power comes from, how do we return that power into our own hands and start to reclaim the power of language rather than being shaped and manipulated by it? So the meaning-granting field I'd love to talk about, touch on some things about cymatics, which is the science of waves, how vibration and geometry are one interconnected phenomenon and how that relates to language. And we can start to build from there to see, okay, if we understand language as a phenomenon, what does it look like if we go all the way back into history to some of the most ancestral indigenous languages, some of the oldest sacred languages that we find in the sacred texts all around the world? And how is our current approach to language different from that? And in meaningful ways, love to be able to talk on that. And, mm -hmm. and from there, perhaps we can, we can dive into how the difference can be 
used to our advantage and, and we can find this reclamation and how it has been throughout history um, capitalized on for large scale influence and manipulation. I think that would probably be a, a good trajectory to go. Right on, man. Well, you mentioned the source of language, and that sounds like an excellent place to begin. It seems like it's very difficult to understand any of our history since, first of all, they rewrite it as we go, and we've seen this in real time in our modern age, but it's, it's extremely hard to understand anything about who and what we are in our history 10, 20, 50, much less 100 or thousands or, or more years ago, and the roots of, of language it can be very difficult to kind of pin down a lot of the aspects of this. How did you, uh, you know, what was your studies based on when you're looking at the roots of language? Some of the main source texts that I've worked with are the works of Charles Eisenstein and David Abram. So The Ascent of Humanity and The Spell of the Sensuous are the two books respectively. And some of the ideas that come out of that first off i want to say there's definitely gaps in our understanding like you're saying one we have a fragmented and oftentimes distorted view of our own history as a civilization and as people but because language was for i would say the majority of its development not written it's much harder to trace a development of something that has no physical instantiation so in terms of the work of David Abram and Charles Eisenstein, we can think about the very start of language as emotive vocalizations. So there's, you know, fear at the very base is obviously the, the foundational survival emotion that we experience. There's desire, there's surprise, there's sadness, there's joy, these really core human emotions. And our capacity to vocalize is a lot older than our capacity to think, let's say, right? We can look at all these different animals that are making sounds and signals and all these types of things, communicating in vocalized ways. And it could be, and this is a part that comes from um, Mr. Charles Eisenstein, that the original building blocks of language were repetitious, emotive vocalizations. So you can imagine, let's say you and I were in a tribe, right? We don't actually have a language yet. And where we're living has incredible storms, huge thunder, huge lightning, shakes the ground. And that scares the living daylights out of us. Well, if every time one of those big booms come off, I make the same what the sound, something like this, what the. Now, if I do this when that isn't there, if I had done it enough while it was there, it's almost like a Pavlovian response. You know that when I say that word, I'm referring to not only the physical phenomenon, but also the emotional experience of that phenomenon. And it's immediately when that becomes codified between two people, two minds, we have the building blocks of language because we have something that exists inside the common mentality, a symbol, right? A, a vocalization, an idea of shared experience that is necessarily a reference to, but also non-distinct from the environment. And that's a really key piece. Because if we think about for all of our development up until maybe the last 10,000 years, we were so deeply rooted and surrounded by the natural world. 
And so the languages that we would have spoken, the ways we would have understood and framed our sentences and generated our narratives about who we are, all the different parts of our lives, what relationships mean and these things would be directly influenced by the living environment itself. And this is where we start to get into David Abrams' work. This, this connection is a part of where the power from the oldest languages come from, in my estimation. So when we look at the indigenous languages today, we look at how those developed and how different they are from English, as an example. The living terrain is what populates a lot of indigenous languages. Whereas in English, it is populated exclusively by sound and symbolic thought. And that difference, that's where we start to get this major disconnect and the capacity to distort mind through the power of language. So depending on what culture some were using language, actually they had realized the power of it and started to use language to cause manipulation of sorts, right? Later on, yeah, and I, I think that that is built sort of post-Greece. So as soon as the the real harmony that came through the Kemetic traditions and ancient Egypt, which obviously we know came from a lot of older civilizations as well, more harmonious civilizations, that as soon as it got into Greece, where the Greeks took the Semitic languages around that region and they codified the Semitic alphabet, into a phonetic alphabet. And so perhaps a little bit of um, clarification is needed around this. So you can imagine a group of symbols, all of which and each of which refers to something in the natural world. So like the, the first letter of the Semitic alphabet, Aleph. Now this in its oldest form looks like the shape of an ox and actually means ox. So the letter, the symbol, and the meaning were one. When the Greeks got a hold of it, they went, okay, well, we don't need to make it look like an ox. We're going to change the shape of it. We're going to drop the meaning of ox because Aleph doesn't mean ox in Greek. And we're going to have this symbol now only refer to a sound that our mouths can make. So this is the distinction between something that is symbolic and referential to the natural world and something that's a phonetic alphabetic language. As soon as we do this, the connection to the source of meaning has been split. We're now only referencing ideas. We're only referencing sounds. And when that comes to be, the distance between the thing itself, the true lived animal as an example, and the word widens so greatly that we can actually change meaning in a way that was not possible before. And I think that that's where it was introduced. Mm. And so you said that we we existed in a very harmonious era. There was a time period where our language was used in harmony and, and not to manipulate. Yeah, this is where we get the idea of something like the original language or perfected languages. As far as I understand it, Sanskrit, Hebrew, ancient Tibetan, you know, perhaps Atlantean, if we knew what that sounded like, these were harmonious languages at the very core. And what I mean by harmonious is that the word itself, the meaning, the sound shape generated through speech 
were all one living entity. So there was a genuine congruency. This is the idea, at least behind a perfected language. So that when you spoke, you weren't referencing, but you were genuinely generating creation through your voice. This is where the, the statement abracadabra, which is, I'm not pronouncing it in the proper Hebrew, but it's a Hebrew term that as I speak, I create. It's like, okay, this is a genuine reference to the generative power of language. And what, I mean, I ask myself this question, what would it have been like to live in a society where the speech was so harmonious that the prevalent falsehoods and distortions and manipulation that are so commonplace now couldn't even be fathomed. That the relationship between people and the relationship between people and the environment was so in line. Like, I crave to know what that's like, you know? All right. Well, let's maybe kind of uh, get into your theories on the pow how powerful that language could have been. It was apparently a threat to some groups at some period in time to where they realized that we did have a lot of power throughout language and they they wanted to be able to control the masses through that, and they didn't want us to have that knowledge of powers of this. Could we discuss a little bit about the possibilities of what the powers of language could have been capable of producing for us? Sure. I imagine for myself that because of the inherent harmony that might have been, that the generative powers of language and sound itself. This is where we start to skirt a little bit away just from language and start to move into sound and vibration as a phenomenon. Would have the ability to activate transcendent states of consciousness. So if we think about ancient rituals where sound, the repetitious um, mantras, right? This use of sound and tonality to transform and transport consciousness through different realms of experience, either into say the dream time or the astral planes, or to be able to commune with some higher level of wisdom is facilitated by the inherent harmony of these perfected languages and the skillful application, the wisdom necessary to combine the sound meaning elements of that language into say portals as an example. One thing that comes immediately to mind that I saw is a video of someone who was inside the king's chamber in the great pyramid of Giza and they were toning, they were chanting and at a very, almost at a whisper, they were doing it. But the acoustic nature of that chamber is so resonant that even the softest whisper amplified to like the sound of a chorus. You think, okay, amplification is a very powerful phenomenon. Not only are we amplifying sound, I believe that if these languages were as powerful as I imagine them to have been, that the sound itself and the intention would have been amplified. So the conscious power woven into the speech would experience that same level of amplification. Right on. Now maybe we could get some more examples of how this dissonance was created in language to manipulate it and to manipulate others and how the roots of language were integrated into religious texts to misdirect us in certain ways. Sure. Yeah, the 
the disconnect that allows for the manipulation of language and therefore the manipulation of mind traces back to one of the pieces at the earliest pieces is when we started to have symbolic thought. So there's a couple pieces that we can touch on here. And I think some of them were happenstance, just the natural evolution of mammals trying to communicate. And some of them were perhaps intentional, not for the, the most nefarious of reasons, but perhaps for efficiency. This is like the codification of the Semitic language into the Greek, Greek alphabet. But it's when we have this, this great divide that I spoke of where not only are we no longer referencing the world in our speech, we're only referencing sound when we write and we're only referencing ideas when we talk. That's where we start to find the grounds for manipulation. So you can imagine it like this. If the word that I say to you no longer has a living point of reference in the world, then if I have a broad enough reach, I can start to change that meaning. And I can change it by the use cases as an example. So we can think of most, maybe some more recent examples, right? The idea of safety. This has been something that's been huge over the last three years, right? Stay safe, stay safe. It's like, well, what it meant to be safe say 10,000 years ago, what it meant to be safe 100 years ago, what it meant to be safe 50 years ago, 15 years ago, and now has been slowly influenced, <clears throat> pardon me, by, I would say, in some degrees, controlled cultural influence and other, the natural progression of human society and the use of language. And we see this a lot nowadays with the the narratives, these, these buzzwords, these taglines, these are ways to introduce intentional manipulation through language into the mind. And these can be used for the good because they can actually tune people in to themselves when it's uh, done with a positive intention. But more recently, we're seeing an attempt to obfuscate truth, to hide the truth through presenting a catchy tagline. An example, build back better. It's like, well, okay, who's building? Why are we building? Why do we have to build back, right? There's all of these questions that because it sounds to our mind, those words mean we're going to come back from challenge. Like uh, the, it's not to say that we're simple-minded as humans, but we definitely work in the foundational blocks of story. And so when we're given something like build back better, we go, okay, you know, I want better. And, and I feel like we should build back, like we should build something together. If we can build it better, why shouldn't we? <clears throat> and so there's this capitalization. There's this, this, I get to use the natural proclivity of the human mind that needs language and already has a meaning set plugged into very common language to try and sell an idea that is not actually true. We see this in advertising all the time as well. So that's one element for where the manipulation comes in. And in terms of the religious texts, this is a particularly interesting one because there's a lot of theories around it. From my perspective, I think that there has been intentional and unintentional dissonance introduced into common religious texts. 
And this might be a pretty hot button issue for people. Again, I'm, I'm just a study, a student of religion. So this is just my, my opinion. But if we think about the Torah, the oldest Hebrew text, right? Hebrew is probably the closest thing we have on earth to a perfected language today that's actually living and spoken. We know that Hebrew has a very mathematical base. There's harmonic and numeric relationships between the symbols themselves, between the sounds themselves. And that when we look at the Torah itself, those mathematical relationships play out in very meaningful ways. And so we go, okay, a brief tangent on this. If we know that there's mathematics that underlie the language of Hebrew and the most ancient and relevant text in Hebrew, and we know that mathematics is one expressive way of understanding the vibrational nature of reality, then there might very well be an indication here that the oldest texts that we have in this very old language are containing at least indicators of the true potential of language. Where we start to find the dissonance is that we take Hebrew and it gets translated into one language, into another language, you know, through Aramaic, into Greek, into Latin, and then into English, and then from older English into new English. And it's like, how many iterations have we had of this translation or transliteration where the oldest understanding of these texts is now so far from this English representation of what we're trying to reference? And I think that what that does or what that can do is that it can mislead our focus away from the genuine source of divine power and externalize it into either power structures, maybe it's the church, maybe it's a vicar, maybe it's an imam, into these externalized and hierarchical social structures wherein the actual, so to say, kingdom of God is within mm. and that those oldest texts would have actually genuinely brought our attention through the power of their language and the power of their formation into that space. So ancient Hebrew is the closest example uh, that we can have in our modern times of this era of harmonious language? In my opinion, yes. Looking back to Egyptian, pre-Egyptian, Sumerian, do we have any indications other than ancient uh, scriptures and texts left over that they might have had an understanding of this as well? That's a really good question. One thing that immediately pops to mind is it's a theory of how we approach history. And so because we have very little writings on, you know, the Atlanteans, we have some on the Sumerians, and we get more and more as we get closer to the present day. One perspective of how we can look at history is that the farther back we go, the less likely it is that what we're reading in a text that we find archaeologically is false. So to say it simply, the closer we get to the present, the more likely it is for lies to be introduced. Mm -hmm. And we see this as we go all the way back. And so what's particularly interesting when we get to Sumerian texts or we get to some of these older, maybe not even archaeological, but the oral traditions of some of the oldest tribes, we start to see stories that overlap. We start to see things about a global flood. We start to see things about 
beings that came from the sky consistently over time. And some of these beings were deliverers of wisdom. And so in terms of the Egyptians, like you mentioned, the being Thoth was said to have brought the written word, as well as mathematics and other things, to the Egyptian people. So the technology of writing itself from this tradition was said to come from another plane. And as the story goes, when Thoth brought this to the, the emperor, the, the pharaoh rather, <clears throat> he rejected it. He said, no way, man. We're not taking this written language because what this is going to do is it's going to weaken our minds. We are now going to be relying on an external technology for memory, for thought, and it's going to weaken our capacity. And so that's an interesting piece that we get. It's like, okay, we know that that the Sumerians knew more than we give them credit for in, in at least the common perception. We know that the Egyptians knew a lot more than we give them credit for in their common conception. And both, and the Greeks for that matter, and all three of these were primarily oral-based cultures. So <clears throat> what that indicates to me is that the power of language was absolutely fundamental to the development and the maintenance of the wisdom that underlied all of these cultures. Because you can imagine, <clears throat> pardon me, you can imagine that if there is such a resistance to codifying something in language and a recognition that as soon as we put it into written word, it is no longer what it was, that that harmony was lived and that rejection was real. You know, so that's those are some of the things that I, I think indicate. Now, to get deeper into what gives language its power, in your notes here, I see you wrote something meaning granting field. I want to get into what that is and your understanding of what cymatics is. And you have something else mind world shaping. So let's get deep into mm -hmm. this stuff. Sure, sure. So the meaning granting field that's one term that I use to describe the universal field itself. So if you imagine yourself here listening to my voice, you exist and you exist as one part, one expression of all of creation. And it is the underlying fabric of creation, the underlying isness, beingness of reality that is the source of all meaning in language. And this is where we find the connection between being, truth, and meaning. So as an example, I can say to you, okay, I had oatmeal for breakfast, right? That's a sentence, but it's referencing something that happened. And if it is the case that this morning there was oatmeal in my bowl and I ate it for the first meal of the day, there is a lived a physical reality to reference and to provide the truth to that sentence. And that's where we get meaning is because we have to have a reference point. And the reference point, it's like the field's referencing itself. I get this is a little bit strange when we're thinking about the words in our mind versus the thing that we're referencing. But ultimately, if something is genuinely instantiated in this 
physical existence, and this can also be an energetic instantiation, that's where the source of meaning is for the words that we use. So you can imagine if I say something like, Filbert clenched his Philly bulks. That is absolutely and entirely meaningless if Filbert doesn't exist, if clenching doesn't exist, and if there's no such thing as a Philly bulk, right? Right. And so the meaning granting field is one, this conscious underpinning of reality that allows us to have the capacity to reference, to take in information and to be able to experience simultaneously. And how that relates to cymatics is particularly interesting as well, because now we start to talk about the nature of vibration, the nature of creative geometry, and how that inevitably will <clears throat> relate itself to the power of language. Are you familiar, Chris, with the 64 tetrahedron cube? It's like the something that Nassim Haramim has yes. brought forth is what he believes to be the foundational geometry of the quantum field. Yes. If we look at a geometry like this or something like sacred geometry or even the Sri Yantra I have here around my neck, we see references to harmonic geometry as the foundational nature of reality. Okay, great. Cymatics, coming from the Greek word kaima, meaning wave, is a field of study that investigates the nature of vibration. And what we discover from, at the very base, from the study of cymatics, is that vibration generates harmony and geometry. To put it even simpler, vibration orders matter. And so now we go, okay, there's vibration that I have no control over, which is say quantum vibration, the vibration of electrons, the molecules in my body, all these things that I'm not controlling how much carbon weighs or the, you know, the bonding angle of two particular atoms. As an individual, I don't have control over this, but I am necessarily an expression of this harmony because I am matter organized. And so I'm an expression of harmony and I'm an expression of vibration. And the very fact, Chris, that we can speak and sing and harmonize is indicative of our capacity to, well, harmonize and the fact that we are vibrational beings. And so, okay, what have we got here in simple terms? The universe we know to be a single vibratory conscious and generative entity. We know that these different intersecting vibrational patterns generate the geometry of creation. We see this again with sacred geometry, with the 64 tetrahedron and with the Sri Yantras and things like this. And we know that we create harmonious patterns while speaking. Therefore, our speech will order matter. This is where the mind and world shaping comes in. Because we start to, if we start to integrate the understanding that our entire being, our body, our minds, our voices, the electromagnetic vibration of ourselves is vibrational and therefore generative, we can go, okay, 
I also have willpower and I can apply with intention my will to shape my own mind. This is where like self-hypnosis, affirmations, the power to change one's mind through language comes in. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So two, this is where we are capable of being manipulated and influenced because we're mutable beings. We are very, very high in potentiality. And so if we don't reclaim and actively participate in shaping our minds through our inner dialogue and through our spoken word, we will be shaped by the world. So we have to make this choice. We have to make this reclamation. You mentioned powers of song and harmonies. Do you think that there was a disconnect somewhere along the way to where we had this better understanding of the connection between music and song and vibration and harmonies and that it was all part of language at one time? I would say so. I think we might have some indications of the importance of tone and harmony, even looking at living languages today. Some languages have tone as a grammatical tool. So if I say something in a higher pitch, if I say something in a lower pitch, even if it's the same sound, now there's a meaning indication there. So we can see that, and this, these are old languages too. We think about Mandarin and ancient Chinese. These are tonal languages. These are ancient languages. And so it looks to me that there's very likely a link between the wisdom of tonal interplay and the harmonious nature of a given language. Now, whether or not it's necessary to, to have that tonal interplay while we're speaking to activate, I don't think so. I'm under the impression that the human spirit is the most powerful energy that we have access to. And that even if we are articulating a flubbed, strangely shaped and weirdly toned language like English, that we can infuse it with the harmonious and luminous power of our spirit to actually generate genuine harmony. So I don't think we're disconnected from that power entirely. Mm. Could you give us some examples of that, of how we might be able to, to integrate that? Absolutely. Fundamentally, the thing, the behavior that will impart 
the most power to one's speech and dissolve any sort of dissonance from one's speech is to maximize truth. So this is key. It's like we can say don't lie. This is a negative, right? But that's if we reference back to what we're talking about where the meaning granting field is where we find the bridge between speech and truth, right? It's the field itself. Something is genuinely real in the field. And therefore, when we say something about it, it's true because it exists, right? You can imagine that the greatest source of power, obviously I mentioned the human spirit, but is the, the whole universe itself, this unified field. And that when we speak truthfully, we are connecting the vibration of our language to that very source field. But when we lie, what we're doing is we're actually bending. We're introducing distortion. Like, you you know, when you play two wrong notes on a guitar or a piano and it's like, oh, that kind of doesn't sound good at all. That's dissonance. And when we lie, when we omit the truth, not only do we disempower our speech at a fundamental creative level, but we introduce dissonance into consciousness, into our minds, into our bodies, into the bodies of other people that necessarily needs to be harmonized. Like the universe wants balance. This is the fundamental uh, concept of the Tao, right? It's the way, all nature in balance, so to say. And so if we are generating imbalance, disbalance, particularly through false speech, the consequences of that will show up in our lives. So by making a dedicated and concerted effort to only speak what is true, that's one of the most foundational and first steps, I would say, that people can take to re-empower their language. Now, what about the the everyday tone that we use to to speak to each other and the inflections and things like that? Is there a fundamental way that we are doing this to in a negative way? There can be. There definitely can be. Easy example you can think of, if you've ever listened to someone who was really hard to talk to, perhaps they were very monotone and they were very staccato in their voice. And you're like, oh my God, I feel like you're hitting me with a hammer when you're talking. This is not pleasant at all. There are ways that we can communicate between people that promote connection, promote intimacy, promote understanding. And these are predicated on our natural tendencies as social beings. So if we can maybe take a public speaking course or look into some of the very fundamental psychology of public speaking and communication, we'll see elements that are supportive to generating greater harmony between people. But again, some of the things maybe to avoid are the things that are detrimental. It's like monotone speech, speaking without volume, speaking without passion, being very sluggish, right? If you imagine power is vitality, vitality is power. And so when I speak with the vitality of my body, it carries across to people. People feel that. It's like if you've ever been to a motivational speaker or listened to someone that was really passionate about what they were saying, you're like, yeah, that I'm on that wave. Like I feel hyped because of the energy that this person's bringing. That's the vitality. So you can imagine the opposite of that is a really easy way to rob or to deprive 
the words that you're offering to someone of power and harmony. Well, let's take a look at some of the ways that that language has been used to manipulate us on a large scale. When we look at things like mass media influence and where we're at today, also how our modern language has de-evolved and degraded and the way that we speak to each other and especially you know each younger generation seems to be getting worse and worse our education system plays into this so what are some of the things that we need to to look out for that is actually detrimental to the way we use language Mm, excellent question chris primarily divisive language So what we see a lot and what I see a lot is narratives that are presented that create division. We know this, right? There's an us versus them. It's the Republicans versus the Democrats. It's the pro versus the anti. It's whatever it is, us versus them. And the language that generates this is very easily detectable because they'll tell you a story. These people are bad because of this. These people are good because of this. And so when we encounter those types of narratives, even in ourselves, because we can we do this to ourselves all the time as well, but that kind of divisive narrative is necessarily going to provide to us and to others a lower resolution image of what's going on. Because if we think about it like this, when we are divisive, we have to be reductive about the things we're talking about in a lot of cases. So think about it this way, right? If someone comes up to you and goes, yeah, you probably got this before. It's like, oh, you're you're just a conspiracy theorist. It's like, okay, what, what that person has done, one is they have taken the sum total of your complexity as a human being, all of the nuance and the history, the genuine emotional and psychological depth that is unique to you, Chris, and they have put it into two words, Conspiracy theorist. And they don't have access to the genuine uniqueness of you. One, because they probably don't know you, and that's why they're saying this. But two, when they pop this label out, this divisive label, this container, so to say, they've already populated that container with their own meaning. It's not just someone who theorizes about large scale conspiracies, because that would be the literal meaning. And that's fine. Be like, sure, I think that people conspire when their interests align. That makes sense. People do it all the time. Mm. But it means more than this. For them, in, in this case, I imagine, and I would project that it means that what you have to say is no longer credible. And now they've added these other pieces of meaning, right? They're trying to discredit, disallow, and disempower whatever it is that you are saying by putting you in this box and attempting to put other attempting to have other people place you in that box in their mind as well. And so this is a very, very common tactic for sensationalized media. We need to create a box. We need to create the enemy. Maybe it's the the pro-lifers. Maybe it's the pro-abortionists. Maybe it's the pro-vax. Maybe it's the anti-vax. It doesn't matter what box they make. But as long as the box is made and they made it, so the walls are made up of, oh, they can't be trusted. Oh, they don't want what's best for you. Oh, they're only operating off of lies. Oh, they believe violence is important. 
Now they've generated something that is propped up by the meaning of language, but is not actually instantiated. And this is where we get this distortion. This is where we get the manipulation because the people who will take this in and, and believe it probably in good faith, they, they want information, they want to understand the world and they're looking to a source that they believe they can trust, whether or not it's true that they can. They'll take this in as though it is as equally true as something that is lived and instantiated. And so when we are faced with these types of narratives, what I find to be very powerful is to listen without judgment. Because we can find ourselves, if we start to judge, we're just putting them in a box. How many people have you heard? Well, oh, so-and-so from this network or, oh, this person's that. It's like, oh, you know, as much judgment as we might feel coming from the other side, quote, unquote, we too can generate and create that same division. So instead of doing this, just go, what are they saying? They're saying to me that this is the case. These people believe this. This is what happened. Okay. Real simple question. Is this completely true? Okay. Just like we talked about, what does it mean for something to be genuinely true? Well, that it's instantiated in reality. And when we start to pick apart these narratives that we come across on all of these different platforms, we see that so much of it is either opinion or conjecture or entirely conjured by itself. And when we strip away all of that, there's sometimes a little modicum of truth that there was actually an event that took place. And that's what we should be seeking always. Right what is it that's genuinely true? A hundred percent. It's so crazy how the the shows that I do and the guests that I have coincide with things that I'm actually seeking in my life and may not even realize at the time the connections that are happening. And I've been thinking about this a lot. My own speech and my language development over the years, especially from doing a talk show, I, I, you know, I go back and I, I, I do my classic episodes and I'll put those out. And I'll listen to them sometimes and I'll be like, man, I sound so different now than I used to just because I actively sought to better my my presentation and the, the language I used and the way I talked. And it, it's made such a difference. But I, I've also noticed that there are times when I have language blocks where I am not free-flowing as as I usually do or as I feel like I'm supposed to. And there's other times where it feels like the the information is just flowing through me and the language is just perfect and I'm not, I'm not stuttering or coming up with a bunch of ums or something like that. And it's like a, a form of channeling or something. What is your idea of some of the things that's happening when we're trying to self-develop our own language? And when we actually get into those energy flows where it just seems like it's coming from somewhere else, you know? Mm, totally. Absolutely. I found for myself, there's a couple pieces we're talking about. One is maybe the more difficult elements of language where we feel stuck and rigid. And the other part is the, the channeling piece, which is super powerful. The, the thing that I found to be most supportive to moving through those more difficult or tense aspects of our expression is the breath being able to give ourselves permission to just take a deep breath to be with what's in the body because what is it that brings life force into the body it's the breath 
right? If we think about, we talked about the Torah earlier. What did God breathe? Oh, I just give it away. What did God do to Adam to give him life? He breathed life into the being. He breathed breath into the being. And so our voice, our language is carried on the living breath. And that is what gives life to our speech. And so when we find moments, when I find myself in moments of, of maybe confusion or like, what the hell am I trying to say right now? Why do I feel so clumsy in my mind? Taking the moment to slow down and to take a breath, because let's think about it and tie this right back into vibration. When we breathe, we're literally riding a wave, right? The inhale and the exhale. We are meeting an already naturally occurring wave cycle of the body. And so we can bring that harmony and express that through our voice when we align ourselves with the breath. So that's a really, really powerful um, technique. And it can be a bit confronting, you know, because if I need to take a pause to breathe, I need to be comfortable in silence. And sometimes it's not comfortable in silence when we're having conversations. Maybe we want to impress the person. Maybe we feel like we're taking up too much space. But when we give ourselves the space to breathe, the quality that we can offer the other person in expression is that much more rich. And in terms of the channeling, now that is such a potent piece that you're talking about. You know, it, in, in one element, there's the more spiritual channeling, things like the law of one or or Seth Speaks and, and these channeled works that are really powerful. And on the other end of the spectrum for channeling, there's just the state of flow, mm. this pure energy that is, is creative and it's articulate and it's well-shaped, right? It's harmonious in its geometry that it's coming forward. In terms of flow states, I mean, there's some really beautiful neuroscience around that. And I always encourage friends of mine, it's like, if you feel like you're in a flow, go let the energy move ride the wave let whatever creative and generative energy that's coming through you out because it's it's craving to do that it wants to be expressed and on the other hand the piece around channeling like divine information or or other parts you know information from other vibrations of consciousness i have a little nugget little piece of wisdom that came to me through my own life experience that I've kept close to my heart and I hope is of genuine value to you and your listeners here is that all information is accessible at every point in the universe. All information is accessible at every point of the universe. This is what underlies the idea of a holographic universe where every modicum, every single point is an expression of the greater whole. Well, how does this relate to channeling? Well, if you imagine that when we're channeling, we're bringing in information that is outside of the body, right? It's not our memory. It's not something that we have in our legs or in our toes. It's coming from somewhere. And that somewhere (laughs) is also the sum here, but like the S-U-M here, the sum of here. And so I get a question, this is tangentially related in some of the workshops that I offer. People say, how do I improve my intuition? And I say, well, 
All information is accessible at every point in the universe. And every point of the universe is most alive in the now. So the more present that we can be with our bodies, the sensations of our bodies, the natural state of our mind, the broader the gateway will become for us to have access to those higher levels of information. I want to get into the a little deeper into the power of speech when we're talking about manifestation, speaking things into existence, spells, the connection with what we understand as magic and this unified field and how it can manifest through our language and create for us. Absolutely. So the most powerful expression of our capacity to manifest comes when all of our vibratory systems are aligned and harmonizing on a single intention. So we imagine, like I talked about, the nervous system, the electromagnetics of the body, right? This is the thought and feeling field of the body. That has a vibrational resonance that is measurable. We have the quality and content of the thoughts that are capable of transforming that vibration. We have the quality and contents of the emotions that are capable of changing and shaping that vibration. It's like one thing that came to me recently. We do not manifest and attract what we want, but we attract what we expect. Mm. And so we can come to understand what we are expecting, one, by having a really honest and sober look at the quality of things in our lives that we're attracting, the quality of people, the quality of conversations and things like this, but also by investigating the narrativized structures, the belief structures that exist in language, in our minds. And when we do this, you, I genuinely believe we will start to come to see all of the limitations that are placed around our creative capacity. Another little tidbit. We cannot create abundance. Abundance is the natural state of the universe. The only thing that we can create is limitation. And we create limitation through our beliefs. And some limitation is important. We can't have the full sum total of all conscious divine energy pulsing through our brain in one moment. That's called, you know, transcendence. You're going to reach the other side, see the DMT elves. Who knows what's going to happen? It's a whole other thing. So we have to have limitations. However, you can imagine, say, like a two-year-old building a Lego structure versus someone who works for Legoland building a Lego castle, right? These are still structures. They're still limited and they're still defined. But the quality and intention behind the hands that make it are what make the difference between something that's stable and unstable or attractive uh, in a positive way or attractive to more negative things. And so what I might offer people listening here to go, well, how is it that I can reclaim power over those languaged belief structures that are potentially keeping me from manifesting what I desire most? It starts with the reciprocal to speech, which is listening. And it starts by listening to oneself in a genuine, compassionate and curious way. 
It's like you can imagine, Chris, that in my mind and in your mind, there's a ton of subconscious beliefs that we probably don't really know about. There's stuff going on in the base of our minds that put there by parents, put there by society, put there by our own biological attempts to keep us alive. We can discover these by speaking to the body and listening. Because as much as our mind is a generative thing that we think we're riding and go, oh, I'm going to direct my mind in this way. I'm going to direct my mind in that way. It's its own natural force. Mind is something that is not unique to you and not unique to humanity. It permeates all of this conscious field. And so by speaking into it, we create a vacuum for a response to be given. And that response, because of the innate wisdom of the body, the innate wisdom of the mind, will more often than not be genuine and authentic. I won't say true, because sometimes we can have an authentic thought that is actually, you know, BS and it keeps us locked down. <laughs> but if it's authentic, then we can do a practice that's called like, reflective listening. So let's say someone wants to attract a partner, right? They've been single for a long time. They've had a series of really crap relationships. And they go, I really want to manifest someone who aligns with my values and fulfills me in the way that I seek. Well, you have to start asking yourself this question. What do I believe about myself in relationships that has kept me from receiving? That's one example of a question. Mm -hmm. Or what do I believe about men? What do I believe about women as a whole? What do I believe about marriage as a whole? And start to not just rattle these questions off like I just did, but take one of them in a moment, in a space where you're not going to be interrupted, kind of like a meditation, an active meditation, ask yourself this question and listen. Because the body will talk, man. Like it is a living, breathing, active, communicative entity. And so when we ask these questions, ideas will come up. The truth of the belief system will start to come up. And you might find that there are language pieces in there that you go, oh man, if I genuinely believe that no marriage will work, how could I ever hope to attract a wife? Because I'm telling the universe that I, it's not going to work. Mm. And so this conversation we have with ourselves through reflective listening is how we can start to almost cleanse, like purify the mind and body of those limitations that keep us from manifesting what we truly desire. Yeah, looking back, there were so many times where I had this kind of universal knowing and what I felt was the right thing to do deep down inside, but I'd ignore it because either I wasn't ready or I didn't want to hear it or I wasn't in the right place in my life. And I think that we all have this at all times. We all have this ability to just know the truth about something. It's already inside of us in some way. 100%. It's like the capacity for knowledge and the capacity for wisdom are our birthrights. Wisdom is not our birthright. Knowledge is not our birthright, but the capacity for them is our birthright. And so we will naturally respond to our environment in, in ways that can be deeply informative. And so you speak about having this, this deep inner knowing, this like ultimate present awareness of what is right. That in my opinion, is an expression of powerful harmony. 
if you feel something and it's like, yeah, that this is the right thing for me. That's like when at the end of a song and someone hits this like beautiful chord right at the end, you're like, ah, oh, that, right? It's like getting into fresh sheets in a, in a warm bed, right? Like there's just something so resolved and attractive about it. That's what harmony feels like for us as human beings. It's something that we are drawn towards. And a lot of times, for whatever reason, lots of different reasons, we turn ourselves away from that because I believe our culture is very impoverished in imparting the wisdom that would help us trust that more strongly. You know, it, we grow up, I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a sort of half Christian, half hippie artist home, really beautiful, great parents. Um, so I had the luck of, of this strong sort of ancient tradition from religion, but also this perspective of like, oh, astral travel's a thing, you know, music and harmony is a thing. How does it, and so I started to, to blend these together, but a lot of people don't have or haven't grown up in environments where they are taught that trusting that inner voice is not only okay, but it's the best thing that you can do for yourself and other people, because that trust is a deep inner knowing of self. And it, what it is, what underpins, I believe anyways, the capacity to live an authentic and integral life. Yes. Because where else are we going to find the answers to the most personal questions about ourselves, if not inside ourselves? A hundred percent. This is fantastic information, man. I love it. Let's close out with this. Maybe a few more examples of how we can defend against false narratives through language and some ways that we can also advance through our own forms of language. Sure. In terms of the defense, I think what I would offer here is something that I call epistemic humility. So epistemic coming from the word epistemology, which is the philosophy of knowledge, how we come to know things, if knowledge is possible, uh, if so, when, and then humility, which we know to be quite the opposite of pride, right? If someone is epistemically humble, they are operating from a point of, I don't know. And I want to be really aware of what I don't know and move through the world knowing that I probably don't know the answer to a lot of these questions and how that defends us against these more nefarious forms of language manipulation is because when we start to cultivate a very strong and grounded sense of epistemic humility, we can direct that same level of questioning out into the world. So into ourselves, it would say, do I really know this? Can I really know this? Or do I just think it and believe it? And ask ourselves about a lot of things, about, you know, anything that we hear on the news, about what we believe about other people, what we believe about ourselves. We can start to question and become humble to all of the different characterizing and structuring elements of our speech and mind. And when we do this, at the moment that we encounter an intentionally manipulative narrative, we can ask that very same question. Do they know that? Could they know that? Is this really true? And epistemic humility is at the very heart of strong critical thinking. 
We need to be able to question ideas and our own equally, almost more important than anything, because we can trip ourselves up really bad if we don't question ourselves. But when we strengthen our critical thinking skills about our own beliefs, it becomes so much easier to defend against these manipulative narratives because we already have a self-referential check system against bullshit. It's like, I, I already know that I can fool myself. I've done it. And I've screwed myself over and I've hurt people. And this is the joy and the suffering of being a human. But the more familiar I am with it, now when someone tries to pull the wool over my eyes, I'm like, you think you can fool me? I fool myself. I'm the only one that can fool me. Right on. Kind of like this. So that's that's one way that we can defend in a really strong way and, and how we might activate and, and ameliorate our speech. I actually talk about this in, in my newest book that I just published called What in the Word. At the core of this book, I talk about the qualities of sovereign speech. And when we talk about sovereignty, that is a reflection of autonomy, of this reclamation of full personal and spiritual power. That is the sovereign, the king or the queen. And so when I talk about sovereign speech, I'm talking about speech that encompasses, embodies, and expresses the full reclamation of that personal and divine power. These three qualities are truthful, compassionate, and precise. So we already talked about truthful and, and eliminating lies from our language. We can improve our speech by taking into account the very real impact that our words have on the hearts of other people. We can change people's minds, change people's bodies, change people's hormones by how we speak to them, by eliciting emotions. And so by generating a genuine sense of care, by reminding ourselves that other people have feelings and that our words have power, we can start to work to deliver that truthful speech in a way that doesn't compromise the truth, but also is recognizing and validating of the sovereignty of another person. So that's the compassionate piece. And the precise piece, this is essentially say what you mean. We can imagine that if I said, hey, Chris, can you get me the shoe? You'd be like, what shoe? Where is it? Where do you want me to put it? When do you need it by? Like there's just, there's all of this cloud of I don't understand what the hell you're talking about. Oh, what's going on? And so when we increase precision, we increase the resolution and therefore the amount of information that we can give somebody, which reduces the mental labor they have to do, which will ultimately lead to less misunderstanding. So we can think about ways to improve our precision, listening to podcasts like this one and other ones that are informative and educational, reading books at or above your comprehension level and repeating out loud new ideas and new words because our expression our method of expression is armed and fueled by the words that we use and the broader our vocabulary can be the more precise like an archer we can be to hit the mark and deliver the truth to the person that we're speaking to right on man that was fantastic great information let the audience know where they can get your book your website all the good stuff social media anything you got going you betcha so you can find me on instagram and youtube at the smiling human 
My website is thesmilinghuman.com. And if you go to thesmilinghuman.com slash book, you can find my new book, What in the Word? Uncovering the Art of Speech and the Power of Language, where I dive deep into all of the topics that we talked about today and many more. Excellent. We will definitely have to do this again in the future. There's so much more we could delve into. Looking forward to that. And until next time, everyone, have an excellent evening, and we will be talking again tomorrow. See you all then.